So what do you need to know about positive psychology and coaching to make the kinds of changes that will transform your life? Coming up next, I'm talking to Dr. Robert Biswas-Diener, one of the foremost experts on coaching and positive psychology. Welcome to the Coaching and Positive Psychology Podcast. I am super excited about our guest today. His name is Dr. Robert Biswas-Diener. I first heard him I think it was about 12 or 13 years ago uh, when I was at the uh, International Positive Psychology Association convention. But his work is phenomenal, particularly for those who have an interest in both coaching and positive psychology. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about him, and then uh, we're going to have a great chat. So um, one of his, I guess, monikers is being the Indiana Jones of positive psychology because his research has taken him to so many amazing places around the world, studying the science of happiness and strengths and courage and all of those good things about life. He is a leading authority on those things for his pioneering work in applying positive psychology to coaching. Robert has authored more than 60 peer-reviewed academic articles and chapters. Two of them have been cited more than a thousand times each. He is the author of seven books, including The Courage Quotient and the book I first read from him, which is simply called Positive Psychology Coaching. Robert, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, I'm absolutely thrilled to be here. Thank you. So I most recently heard you just a couple of months ago um, when you were speaking. You were a keynote speaker for the International Coaching Federation's Converge Conference. I was so excited to see them covering positive psychology uh, coaching. How do you define positive psychology coaching? Uh, it's a good question. And, you know, probably to you, that sounds like a softball question. Like, well, surely Robert knows the definition. Um, <laughs> but I think it's it's surprisingly hard to come up with a, a succinct definition. I mean, first and foremost, I think that positive psychology coaching is just coaching. And coaching by itself has many definitions. I like the definition that it's engaging clients in self-directed learning. Mm. Um, that is that the clients sort of have the answers, that it's a facilitative process and that we are sort of working as facilitators to set the stage for them to gain insights that they'll then leverage for positive behavior change. Now, where does the positive psychology portion come in? I think it's largely invisible. It's sort of an overlay that informs coaching. That is positive psychology coaching just looks like coaching. It doesn't look like laser surgery or basketball or some other, you know, magically different thing. It's just going to be me asking these open-ended exploratory questions, but those questions are often inspired, I think, by my knowledge of the research in meaning in life or happiness. Yeah. It, it, those, those strands of research help me ask better questions. So I think that's kind of what positive psych is. Well, I love that. I, I think that our definitions really are aligned. And one of the things, well, there's two things you said that really stand out. I love the idea of the self-directed learning, because I always say that really great coaching is a learning laboratory that, you know, we're, we're going into the session, whatever the challenge or opportunity is we're dealing with, you know, we're taking action outside of the session, we're coming back, what, what am I learning here? And ultimately, you would hope that your client's 
after they've coached with you, are somewhat able to coach themselves in in scenarios because you don't always have your coach sitting there uh, with you. But the other piece is having some background knowledge of what really causes happiness and meaning, what helps us perform at our best levels. So you may or may not have strong opinions about this, but I do kind of think of um, the, the broader field of coaching. And the reason I became so excited when I discovered positive psychology in the early 2000s is because I was coaching, but I was wondering, well, what what does science actually say? Like, is there any research to back this up? Because it largely felt very anecdotal. And that's what led me to it. I, I literally was Googling master's degree in coaching. Like I was like, is there something in coaching? And positive psychology popped up. What led you to this work? Oh, well, I, I had a bit of a non-traditional uh, entree to the field. Um, I think a lot of people come at it like you because they're interested. They're like, hey, I'm, I'm hungry for something positive in a, in a tough world and positive psychology makes sense. I was raised in it before positive psychology was a thing. Um, so my father uh, was a well-known happiness researcher. My mother, also a psychologist who did her uh, doctoral work under Carol Dweck, and my mom's dissertation research was mindset. That is, my mom and Carol Dweck came up with it together. Wow. That, that, so my mom was the first author on the very first publications in mindset. And then my older sisters, both of them, they're twins, they both became psychologists. So really... It was this family culture of psychology that led me into the field. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. So I knew that both of your parents were in this work. I didn't know as much about your mom. Um, you know, when I went through grad school in positive psychology is when I was first introduced to your father's work. And anyone listening who is not familiar with Dr. Ed Diener, who um, unfortunately passed away this year. And, and Robert, my true condolences to you and your family. Thank you. Um, but you've, you've seen him quoted in my books, <laughs> his uh-huh. research, particularly around happiness and happiness and money <laughs> yeah. are, I think, so practical and so very fascinating. Um, how important it is, is it to you that coaches have some understanding of the research behind happiness and success? I think it's really important to me. So I liked it before when you said, you know, I don't know if you have an opinion on this, but, you know, Valerie, the truth is when I have opinions, they tend to be strong opinions. Um, (laughs) And I think coaching is a little bit of a a Wild West phenomenon, right? You, You get coaches who are, you know, certified and trained and responsible, and you get coaches that just sort of shoot from the hip. Um, or aren't and, really actually coaches. They just use the term because it's not regulated. Exactly. That's yeah. exactly right. So I'm a huge believer in science. Now, I want to I just stress that I think there are many ways of knowing. I think people have faith. People have personal experience. People receive common wisdom. Uh, those are all legitimate ways of knowing. So I don't want to disparage any of those. I just happen to love the scientific method. Like that, to me, is a, a really cool cup of tea. Um, because it does some things that some of the others don't, right? That it it can replicate results so that we gain increased confidence. It can use lab studies to establish causality. It can generalize from a sample to a population. Like it's just a cool way 
of knowing things. So I think just as in medicine, you want things to be kind of scientifically investigated, I think that also should be the case for coaching. So I like the idea of coaching psychology, which is a big movement mm -hmm. within coaching, which is the science of psychology ought to inform coaching. And I think that positive psychology coaching is just a subset of coaching psychology in general. So I think that coaches ought to be familiar with some of the findings and certainly some of the concepts, because I think that's one of the things we do well as researchers is we really parse apart concepts. And, and if we have the time, I'll just give you a quick example. Of yeah, this. I would love to hear. So, you know, you might talk about meaning in life and, and people understand that everyday people, you don't have to have a PhD to understand the concept of meaning in life. But it can be really helpful to have a more specific vocabulary. So I was speaking with someone that works at a large hospital. The staff is under stress because of the pandemic. And, you know, she has the sense that, oh, my staff is really struggling with meaning. But when you say we can subdivide meaning into significance, purpose and coherence. Mm -hmm. And she said, oh, you know, tell me a little bit about that. I'm like, well, purpose is just having a goal significance is thinking that the goal matters and coherence is understanding where you are in the, the sort of the narrative of that goal you know kind of what where you are in the overall arc of things sort of the the pin of you are here and she said well now that is really helpful because everyone on staff feels like they have purpose they all have a goal they feel mm -hmm. like what they do matters what they're struggling with is a sense of coherence they don't quite have a a tidy story to tell. They don't mm. really understand where they are or ultimately where this is headed. And so just being able to conceptually subdivide meaning into these finer points helps people think through things in a more sophisticated way, even though that's not like an empirically validated intervention. Like no one said we tested this against that and it right. worked. But I just think the rich vocabulary is helpful to people. Well, that idea that now we could talk about it in different ways. So if if you're like, I think I have this sense of meaning, but now you can define, do you have all three components of that? Or is it just one? And that's why you're feeling like it's not, you're not quite there yet. And if a coach understands that, you can coach very specifically around that to create this greater sense of fulfillment and meaning. And the person understands, oh, here's the tweak I could make and how I'm approaching this that would make a measurable difference. Absolutely. So instead of just asking a general question, like what gives you meaning, you can say like, how do you place a premium on purpose versus significance? Mm -hmm. um, do, do you see any trade-offs between purpose and significance? right? Which would you like to start working on? Mm -hmm. uh, do you feel that you need all three? Like th those types of questions start really expanding out the coaching conversation. That is so, so good. So one of the things that caught my eye is a term you use of scientific literacy. And specifically for coaches, having some sense of just knowing kind of that's the stuff you're talking about right now. What does some of the research say? And, and in our program at, in the CAP Institute, that's really what we're aiming for, but I had never called it that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and just ha helping people have basic understandings of key research that's typically relevant in a coaching session. But how do you define scientific literacy? 
Yeah. Well, first, I'd, I'd like to say that, you know, kind of going forward in the years ahead, I think literacy as a skill will be one of the key skills for humans. And some of that could be technological literacy. How do I recognize what's real and fake? News literacy. How do I recognize what's real and fake? Emotional literacy. Um, how do I understand emotions? So I think literacy becomes the sort of meta skill. Um, and scientific literacy is one of those. So I don't think you need an advanced degree in science to have some basic understanding of science. After all, we, we teach the scientific method in a rudimentary form to fifth graders, for example. You know, this idea of observation and theory and all this kind of hypothesis. But I think that it's helpful for people to understand some basics around science. That is what science can and can't do. That science really ultimately is about making observations it's about testing things. And if something isn't testable, it's not science. So, you know, does God exist? Kind of falls outside of the purview of science. We don't have a good measure for what's, what's testable about that. So I think that scientific literacy is understanding, I would say kind of at the, at the college level, not at the grade school level, what scientific theory is, what the scientific method is, how the science process works in terms of um, peer review and publication, and, and just understanding something very simple like science, one study doesn't prove something for all time, that it's more like a, a quilt. And every publication is a patchwork on that quilt. And you know, taken together, dozens and dozens start kind of creating a picture. Yeah, I, I, you know, it's so interesting because I've had the experience of loving a piece of research and then seeing someone else come along with another piece that kind of contradicts it, or at least makes you question it a little bit more. And so even just embracing the fact that that's a part of the process, we, we don't get um, so tied into particular results that perhaps feed into the narrative we want, but there were open that these things can change. And, and sometimes science gets criticized for that too. It's like, I thought y'all said, <laughs> yeah. and now it's changing. <laughs> yeah, science is an ongoing conversation, right? And that's one of the things I love about it is that it's a dynamic system of knowledge. So that what I believe today might be different or, or might change a little bit. So take something like many of your listeners will be familiar with um, like the three blessings activity, right? Very, very simple exercise where you write down three things that you're appreciative for. Well, it turns out that our knowledge of that changes over time. It turns out that people who are theists who believe in God benefit a little bit more if they express that gratitude to God. But atheists do not would not benefit from expressing gratitude to God. Or there are certain cultural groups that wouldn't want to express the gratitude because they might then feel beholden or it might create a sense of obligation. Mm -hmm. There's one study that came out that suggests that people who already have sort of a depressive leaning in their personality, that it might lower their self-esteem to do this because um, because it makes them feel kind of in a one down position. So, you know, they, you start saying like, oh, okay, so in general, this seems to be good, but now we need to look at specific groups and, you know, how might it work, uh, for whom, when. Right, because it doesn't apply the same way. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, so interesting. 
So there's one other thing that um, when you were speaking to the ICF that really um, stood out to me, and it was this idea that there are perhaps some levels of sophistication in coaching and positive psychology coaching. And you said, you know, that the, the first is, you know, just an awareness, an awareness that positive psychology, that there's research around this and starting to understand it. And the second level is being able to apply it to your coaching and then adapting to context. I thought that was interesting. Um, but the last one is the one I want to focus in on, which is being able to use it for yourself. So as coaches, it seems to me, you know, and, and if, even if you're hiring a coach, I think part of what attracts you to certain people is you see how these concepts are showing up in their life, <laughs> um, kind of walking the talk, so to speak. Um, so there, you know, there's a big difference between knowing the research and being able to explain it and being able to use it, but being able to implement it. Are, are there some um, steps or ideas that you have for anyone who's saying, yeah, this all sounds great, but I, I want to be at a level where I'm actively able to use some of these concepts in my life. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I think of it kind of akin to going to the, the medical doctor and I like it when my doctor seems healthy. You know, when they come in yes. and they look like they've been training for, you know, a triathlon or something, right? Be like, okay, well, you, you seem to know what's going on. You seem to have good health habits yourself and you have this, this expert knowledge. And I think the, the same applies to, to a coach. I mean, if a coach is always running late and they can never schedule on time and they seem disheveled and disorganized, that isn't great modeling for a client. Yeah. Um, not to say that organization has to be your top strength as a coach, but but that really you want to feel balanced, centered, accepting, right? This all falls under what the ICF would say is the coaching mindset, right? Kind of right. Ha like having your mind in the right place concerning your clients and the coaching process itself. So. I think that, that we do have an obligation. I mean, it's not a formal ethical obligation, but I think we have an obligation to be working ourselves on achieving a sense of well-being. And, you know, maybe part of that is being healthy as possible. Um, part of that might be just enjoying life. Part of it might be having a sense of purpose. Um, it, it, I'm pretty open to how we define that. Um, but I, I definitely think that when you feel like things are, are out of balance or you're really stressed or you're not looking forward to your coaching or, or um, that those are warning signs, right? First of all, those could be signs of burnout, but that really it's, it's helpful to the coaching relationship, to the coaching profession and to your client specifically, if you have your stuff together, basically. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I'm going to go into one other area before we wrap up, which is um, I'm sure you have strong opinions about because you kind of wrote a book around this, um, this topic, which is positive psychology sometimes seems to frustrate some people um, for its incessant focus on, well, positivity, <laughs> right? And you say that there's an upside sometimes that gets lost uh, to negativity that, you know, obviously everything can't be positive. I think, you know, oftentimes when I speak, I talk about 
you know, many know about this kind of three to one positive to negative emotion ratio and um, particularly in our relationships. But if the ratio is higher than 11 to one, you know, one of one of the outcomes of that research is, well, it's just as bad as if it goes below three to one. Obviously, there are negatives in life and we have to be able uh, to deal with those. But when you say, you know, there's there's this upside to negativity. Yeah. Um, Tell me, tell me your thoughts about the kind of an overfocus. Is there an overfocus in the world of positive psychology on positivity? And do you think there's kind of this ugly focus on negativity? Like it's something we need to push away. I mean, I think there can be. And, and recently we've kind of distinguished between positive psychology and positive psychology 2.0, sometimes people call it. And sort of that first iteration was hey, you know what, we've all been focused on negativity for a long time. News is negative. We're always trying to overcome our weaknesses. We're always, you know, trying to, you know, fix what's broken. Shouldn't we also be focusing on strengths, happiness, and the positive? So that that was sort of the advent of the field. But I think an unintended side effect of that was what, at the time I wrote that book, I called happiness fascism. Like now we've got to all be happy all the time, right? More recently, people have been calling it toxic positivity. It's like one yeah. of the new new terms that has emerged. Um, and I think there's a recognition that, yeah, that doesn't seem realistic. It, it can feel oppressive. I mean, if you would have come to me after my dad passed away and said, oh, Robert, you know, what, what are the lessons you learned from it? Why is this actually a good thing? I would feel like that you're really missing the mark, right? It's a lack of compassion because it's appropriate for me to grieve, right? That's a completely appropriate process. So the 2.0 movement is a a recognition that some of these so-called darker states or unpleasant states can be helpful and they're normal. Um, So let's just take both emotional and cognitive or thinking. First of all, the so-called negative emotions are part of our functional architecture. It's it's okay to feel guilty. Guilt tells you that there's something that you did wrong and you probably need to course correct. That's not a terrible thing. It feels terrible. Yeah, there's a purpose for guilt. Yeah, and typically guilt. Yeah, yeah, and typically <laughs> guilt passes pretty quickly. People sort of have this idea that oh, you're just mired in guilt and it exists for years. But you typically feel guilt, you know, maybe over the course of an hour or something. Same thing. Sadness is kind of like things aren't working out. Maybe we should press pause and quit quit using our resources. Anger, something I care about is under threat. I need to prepare to, to act, to defend that thing. So these emotions that we hold at arm's length often are just messages that are worth listening to. Now, it's, yeah. it's true that, sure, they, they could be clinical, like depression, for example, that, that's really enduring over a long period of time. Yeah, that, that can go wrong. But mostly, the the types of irritation, frustration, boredom, anger that we feel is not clinical and is effective and helpful. The same thing in cognition and thinking, and I really wanna say this to coaches, we think that any sort of negative thinking about the self has to be challenged. But often the negative thoughts we have, the tone is off, but the agenda of that messenger is good. So if someone says, oh, you're not qualified or you can't do this, the coach immediately wants to say, oh, yes, you are. I want to reassure you, you are qualified or let's challenge that notion. But I'm kind of like, maybe the person's not qualified. Right. Or maybe the person can't do it. Or maybe the messenger is really just saying, 
I want you to make sure that you do a good job or that you mm -hmm. think this through carefully, that you're strategic. Like the messenger typically has a good agenda, but they're using kind of off language. So as a coach, I mean, I always say one of the best questions is, you know, is there a grain of truth in this? And what is it? Sometimes the feedback isn't constructive. It it sounds rather destructive, right? <laughs> maybe someone said it in a way that's hard to hear. And maybe 90% of what they said isn't true. But is there a 10% that you could pay attention to? And if you did, there's room for improvement that might be very strategic for you if you pay attention. Absolutely. And in addition to that, you can you can back up and say, not only the message, but the messenger. Like, what do you think mm. this person is hoping to accomplish in giving you this feedback? Mm. And often it's like, I want a better relationship. I want to be able to work more easily with you. Like, it's actually something that's pretty good. Yeah. So we sort of cast like this negative lens on either thoughts or emotions, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're bad. They're just uncomfortable. Yes. That is so, so good. And as I know, one of one of your uh, points that you've made in, in one of your books is that particularly here in the U.S., we love comfort. So when things feel uncomfortable, a lot of times our natural reaction is to push it away, avoid it, or ignore it. Yeah. yeah. Coaching provides that space, preferably it should, where we can explore the things that are uncomfortable in a safe space with a coach. Um Robert, I, I could go on and on asking you questions all day long because I, I just love hearing your perspective and how you incorporate so much of this research into uh, coaching and just helping people improve their lives. Um, I would love for my listeners to be able to see more of your work. Where can they find you? Um, I'm at positiveacorn.com. So I have a blog there. They can reach out to me there, ask questions, comments, whatever. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me. And, and I'm hopeful that we get to uh, continue to connect over time because I, I think so much of what you do is what I advocate for. And I love, love, love just the, the marrying of these two concepts of coaching and positive psychology. So you're like the perfect guest for the Coaching and Positive Psychology podcast. Yeah, so well, thank thanks you for so your much. work also, Valerie. I appreciate it. And I appreciate you having me on. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining me for this episode of the Coaching and Positive Psychology Podcast. And if you've ever been curious about becoming a coach or incorporating coaching skills into how you work and how you lead, we've got a new coach training intensive coming up live and virtual. So you can check it out, all the details at capinstitute.com. That's C-A-P-P -P institute.com. We would love to see you there.